Riveting Radio. Fuck this dude. Big small towns Big small towns 
everybody. Welcome to Down Ballot. We do the show live every Tuesday, 7.30 p.m. right here at twitch.tv slash Echoplex Media. I'm producer Dave. You can find me damn near anywhere. And this is the councilman. You can find me at T-H-E underscore councilman on the Twitter device. So please uh, check that out and uh, slip into my DMs. I don't buy it. Uh, and uh, welcome once again to our, our locals show this evening. This evening is a momentous occasion in the life of local love producer dave oh uh, yeah we got a uh, we got episode 200 coming up it's been uh took, took a lot longer for that to get to 200 than it did uh most than it did for the plex but you know there's been some hiatuses some weeks off some shit shows that i didn't feel like releasing all kind of all kind of problems guests not showing up uh um, me abandoning the project because no one's listening to it all kind of problems with local love but we're back we're having fun now and um the people in the chat enjoy the show and they all like chips so it's all good in the hood looks like i'm gonna have chip uh the media wench juan maserati possibly johnny corn all in the studio plus we got an interview with ashes fallen for the first 40 to 45 minutes obviously Ooh. remote because they're in sacramento that's fabulous that's a fantastic panel are they all gonna fit in the studio no and i'm actually going for um creating a show not having a um not having some kind of free-for-all so no they're not all going to be on the panel an organized show well that that will be interesting i would like it very much if episode 200 of local love was not significantly worse than episode 199 of local love <laughs> <laughs> or episode one for that matter right right um, right uh, well congratulations uh, another uh, fabulous occasion for the echoplex media network uh, and as always everyone check us out on echoplexmedia.com you can find out how to give us your show box to keep this fledgling uh internet radio project alive um definitely watch us keep watching us on twitch uh drop us some subs boost the boost the stream all those things and uh and definitely if you're a, a podcast listener keep downloading down ballot and and local love on your uh podcatcher of choice and share it with your friends especially down ballot we're looking to build an audience of local uh politically savvy folks who dig on some local derp and might want to contribute to our docket uh, from time to time or even come on the show so uh if you're interested get in touch with us and uh drop us some stories get up in the discord um and drop us stories there as well as chip always says about local love throw throw a curveball to people and text message a link to the podcast to your friends oh there you go Te texting so so 90s um all right well shall we get into the docket yeah yeah um what do we got up first well uh recently they've been doing some renovation on uh the henry j kaiser auditorium up in oakland it's one of our venerable older venues here in the in the bay area and uh some of the construction workers found some shit up in the drywall that made them stop constructing a mummified body has been found inside the old Kaiser Convention Center in Oakland. Construction crews working to revitalize that facility made the disturbing discovery. KTVU's Christina Rendon joins us now. She's in the newsroom with more on the investigation. Christina. Well, Julie, we can tell you that police are still looking into this. They do know that the man was found behind a wall in a space 15 inches wide, and they think he was in the ceiling of that building and somehow fell into the cavity and died. Construction crews working to restore the old Kaiser Convention Center in Oakland were back on the job Thursday, one day after discovering a decaying body behind a wall. And they were taking down a wall and he was discovered behind uh, some drywalls flashing uh, within the wall. So it was doing a, a demo. Oakland Police Lieutenant Frederick Shavies tells us this is being classified as an unexplained death. 
The body is believed to be a man who had been stuck there for three to five years based on decomposition. The body was found in a space only 15 inches wide and 12 feet deep. Police say their initial theory is that the man was in the ceiling of the auditorium, then fell into the narrow space and died. Based on scratch marks behind the drywall, they believe the body made its way down the 12-foot cavity over time. It's possible that the person could suffer from positional asphyxiation uh, and also because of the narrow confines, it will be very hard to self-rescue. The Alameda County Sheriff's Office says the body appeared to be mummified. Lieutenant Ray Kelly says they're working to identify the victim. We're hoping that we can maybe rehydrate some of the skin around the fingers and uh, get some partial fingerprints, and then we can run those fingerprints against our database and possibly identify the person. If that doesn't work, they'll turn to DNA and dental records. The hope is for a match on the missing persons database. That might give authorities a timeline of how this happened. The only uh, positive that will come out of this story is being able to identify this person and bring closure to a family that's probably wondering um, where this person has been for many years. And even though a traditional autopsy will be performed, at this point it's likely going to take months before authorities have some answers. Anyone with information is asked to call Oakland Police. Christina Rendon, KTVU, Fox 2 News. Yeah, such a sad and strange story and wondering if there was ever a missing persons report filed on that person. Christina, thank you. Yikes. You think? I, would, I mean, I would hope so. Um, um, I, I feel like I feel like this is like how like horror, a horror movie of some kind would start. Yeah, that or like a you know one of those TV cop dramas or crime dramas, right? Um, and the, and cue the fancy music. Da, 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 da. Um, yeah, I don't I don't know what's going on there. That's that's a good good theory as anyone. I, I mean, I first heard this story and I'm thinking mob, right? Or uh, or some sort of gang shit where they killed someone and they stuffed his body in the in the wall, right, of a construction project. Um, but maybe it's because I'm Italian and that's just where my mind goes. <laughs> uh, but anyway, uh, be careful out there when you're doing uh, you know, some contract work, you might come across a mummy and don't disturb the mummy. I'm just thinking, I'm, I'm just thinking like, what a way to go. Like it, to it, fall in a wall. Well, it, I mean, it must've taken some time before that person expired. So you would think, right? They asphyxiated or they, yeah, oh God, that'd be awful. And then to talk about their body, like they said that as the body decomposed, it made its way down the wall, right? Uh -huh. It was not, it was not found in the position it died in. Gross. Um, so not, yeah, not a very dignified nor fun nor, uh, nor very painless way to die. That must have sucked ass. This um, is a, so wait a minute. This is a, okay, everybody, we're about to get into winners and losers where the, there are no winners, and if there is a winner, it's somebody you don't want to win. This is a pretty terrifying docket so far. I, you know, I, I aim to please. <laughs> it, is Mar it is the Ides of March, so uh, we, sh we should be wary of that. Um, and yesterday was Pi Day. It just goes on and on. Um, anyway, but as you said, we are coming up to winners and losers, and yeah, this is, it gets pretty dark pretty quick. I, I tried to you know, lighten it up. Like The curve definitely goes up towards the end of the docket, but this, this one is probably, uh, this takes the cake for probably the shittiest story um we've had on down ballot before i'll just let it run south bay cat owners say they're terrified the person who tortured and killed their pets has been released one month early to a supervised program abc 7 news i team reporter melanie woodrow explains why i don't feel safe Miriam Martinez says she adored her beloved adopted cat, Thumper. She was like the neighborhood cat. Martinez was one of many families victimized around 2015 by Robert Farmer. Our cats were brutally 
brutally killed. Prosecutors say evidence showed Farmer tortured and or killed at least 21 cats. He was found in his car and there was blood evidence contained in his car. Farmer pleaded guilty and was sentenced to 16 years, 13 years in custody, followed by three years of mandatory supervision, according to the Santa Clara County Deputy District Attorney, who explains that in California for crimes such as these, a person only serves half of their time in custody. Farmer was supposed to be released on April 10th, but was released a little more than one month early on March 1st to enter a non-custodial program, where he's being supervised by the Sheriff's Office with an ankle monitor. The Deputy District Attorney says he'll transition to the Probation Department supervision on April 10th. I'm hoping that the monitoring will be sufficient to protect the community and to ensure that nothing like this happens again. Leonor Delgado and Carol Hyde are with the Palo Alto Humane Society. We're very concerned. They say it's hard to know whether Farmer has been rehabilitated. We don't know. The deputy district attorney says the conditions of his release include counseling, substance abuse treatment, a stayaway order of 100 yards from the Cambrian Park 95124 neighborhood, and Farmer can't have or live with any animals for 10 years. This is one of the more horrific and disturbing cases I've ever worked on. Animal lovers have this warning for the community. Please keep an eye out for him. Please keep your pets inside, not only because of people like Farmer who could be out there, but also because of other dangers. ABC 7 News reached out to Farmer's attorney. We have not yet heard back. For the I-Team, Melanie Woodrow, ABC 7 News. This is like, uh, this guy's, they're just letting him out an, a month early and with an ankle monitor. This this story seemed like, like, uh, yeah, I, I this is a known story. But they asked, has he been rehabilitated in prison? The answer is no. No, absolutely not. <laughs> I, I mean, I don't see how you're going to kill and torture, you know, torture and kill at least, at least they said 21 cats that they know of, right? Um, that doesn't necessarily strike me as one of those passing fads or something you do as a casual, you know, hobby. That's a, that's an obsession and that's a problem. Um, so I doubt that, yeah, no matter how much time they spent in, uh, in the who's gal, I'm guessing it was not enough to expunge that desire so there better be some serious therapy involved there better be an ankle bracelet there better be like a you know definitely the uh the restraining order and the the distance from all animals whatsoever but um you know you never know like just make sure you make sure if you're living in the neighborhood that you're not letting your cat wander off right into other people's yards um i i my take is like very much different i just think that <clears throat> almost nobody gets any sort of rehabilitative services whatsoever while they're in prison. I mean, I think, I, I don't think anything that we would consider like truly rehabilitative, right. Or, um, all that, all that good for them, for them. Right. Um, ostensibly they get something. I'm, I'm sure some people get something out of going to prison. Right. But it may be something that they themselves, you know, uh, uh come to write a realization or, um, a new approach to life or whatever it is, new philosophy, new religion. Um, generally I think it's the people, it's the, inmate themselves or the prisoner themselves that comes to that space um, and not the system that brings them there. I think you're right. Yeah. And I just think that there's just the services just aren't fucking there. No, no. And they're not. And then we don't, when we don't pay for them, we pay a ton to incarcerate all of these individuals. We don't spend very much money at all on services for them, mental health services, post uh, incarceral, uh, post carceral services, right? What do we do when they get out? job training, job retraining, if they've been in for so long that they can't, you know, acclimate to the, the new economy. 
things like that. It's there's no, but there's none of that. I mean, there is, but it's just not. There's nowhere near enough funding for it that it's that it can help. Yeah, I just there's it doesn't like matter what someone's crime is. I'm just like there are just not. I just don't hear a lot of stories about people getting, you know, any kind of like rehabilitative services in prison. I just don't hear about it. So yeah, and and unfortunately, you know, this does lead to. Not it's def- certainly not the only cause, um, nor even the primary cause of homelessness, but it definitely leads to homelessness. It leads to people living outdoors. Leads, leads to people with PTSD and with drug addiction problems because they're living outdoors, right? And they're unsheltered and they don't have any support system around them. So yeah, I worry like hell about um, like forget a person who has a family when they get out, right? Like they have a, parents who are still alive, or you know, friends or brothers and sisters, right? Uncles, aunts, someone who can give them a job, give them a leg up, right? But most folks coming out of prison don't have that at all, right? Um, and if anything, if they had it, it went away when they went to prison. Um, so uh, yeah, it's it's a tra- it's a travesty right now. Um, so if, if anything, we need better, we need to elect better people to go to Sacramento and try to fix that. But I'm not holding my breath. Yeah, but I, I like I said, this is just one month early. I don't think that I just don't think that a month is going to make a difference, even if there were services. No, no, probably not. Um, and who's to say he doesn't deserve it? He's gone. Th- he's gone through all the programs we've asked him to. Um, but yeah, no, it's a nothing story. It's more just to be able to rehash that this guy's a rat bastard for killing all those cats. If it bleeds, it leads, even if it's a cat. <laughs> anyway, uh, moving along to human problems. Um, so we've got some teachers up in San Francisco who apparently have not been paid since January. I don't know any teacher that would put up with being, not being paid for like two weeks, let alone two months. So let's see what's going on here because obviously the school board's not really watching the game because they're all recalled. Well, happening today, hundreds of teachers in two Bay Area school districts may receive pink slips. Today is the state deadline to issue the layoff notices, and it comes as San Francisco teachers stage an unusual protest and dispute over back pay. Today at the Bay, Sierra Johnson following those developments for us this morning. She's live in San Francisco. So, Sierra, talk to us about what's on the line here. Good morning, Marcus. Yeah, it's a story we've been following for months now. Today is officially that deadline from the state that those notices are going out and have to be received uh, by those individuals. 300 positions on the line at this time. If you take a look at your screen, we have a breakdown of what exactly those positions are. So according to the district, the cuts include 151 teacher, counselor and social work positions, 51 top level managers and 62 additional staff members. Now, the district says not every employee who receives a notice will be laid off. Early retirement and resignation incentives are being offered, that with the hopes of filling vacancies with existing staff. And as one district works to deliver those layoff notices, another also dealing with the budget shortfall is also preparing teacher layoffs. Now, the school board for the Sausalito Marin City School District just approved potential layoffs for five classroom teachers, as well as reduced hours for an additional three staff members. Now, these cuts would go into effect next school year, and they're working to balance a $1.6 million deficit. 
Meanwhile, the issues with the San Francisco Unified School District, they don't end with those potential layoffs. Just last night, frustrated teachers and staff members camped out at district headquarters. They're demanding administrators fix payroll system glitches that have delayed or even shortchanged hundreds of educators over the past two months. District leaders say the problem stems from the district switching over to a new accounting system. The superintendent has released a statement saying in part, quote, we deeply apologize to every employee who was experienced a delay in pay. We are committed to resolving this emergency as quickly as possible, continues by saying every staff member will be paid the money they are owed. So we will, of course, continue to follow the payroll situation as well as those layoff notices. Again, today is the deadline for San Francisco Unified School District, as well as the potential layoff for a handful of teachers there in the Sausalito Marin School District right over the bridge. We're live in San Francisco, Sierra Johnson for today in the Bay. Huh. Well, they have to just keep teachers. coming for fucking San Francisco teachers, right? Teachers in general, right? My God. I mean, who they complain a lot. There's there's definitely a shortage of teachers right now, especially in high need areas, you know, special education, mathematics, sciences. Um, but it uh, why and would you you have to be crazy to go into the teaching profession this day and age you have to really love it right you have to imagine that the folks that do this job really fucking love it because they're not getting paid anywhere near enough they're not respected enough they get dumped on every chance you know someone gets and they've been out there on the front lines basically of covid all this time right and parents are cheering that you know we can go maskless and they're screaming that you know the t teachers need to sack up right um and they just keep getting dumped on um so it's no wonder that they get together in unions to organize and to fight for their rights. Um, I think maybe if more people in the private sector did, they wouldn't be such automatons either. Um, and we can push back on the corporate landowners and, and corporate uh, 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 you know, behemoths. But that's another story entirely. Teachers just keep getting fucked. Um, and now, of course, there's less and less board members uh, around to, to look out for them. Um, and three of them are already checked out. So. This is what you get. This is this is governance. This is what um, the folks that proposed the recall. Now they have to run to be appointed for these seats, right? Theoretically, they're going to go for these seats. Um, now you get to govern. You get to deal with the teachers union. You get to deal with the classified employees union. You get to deal with the trades unions and all of the other ins and outs of running a school district, right? The power bill, the food bill, um, the water bill. Uh, good luck. Have fun. Oh, yeah. And you have to bring equity and make sure that all your kids is learning well <clears throat> i don't know like the people who did the recall they probably think that this is like an advantageous turn of events for them now too because now when they go to like i don't know if they go to recall the rest of the board or whatever they can go they couldn't even get the payroll out and so they can recall the rest of the fucking board after this recall election you know yeah yeah I mean, it's um, fucked up, but like if, if they're just playing politics here, you know, either make a name for themselves as individuals or maybe they're part of a, you know, what seems to be a broader movement across the country to tear down public education as an institution, be it through, you know, complaining about masks to fucking complaining about, you know, esoteric theories of law to, you know, getting mad about a Black Lives Matter poster at a school to all these different right. things that just seem like if it's not a coordinated effort, I mean, it. it you know whatever it's like a stochastic effort then where it's you know where it just it would appear to be coordinated and it's having the result that it, it's you know <clears throat> you know that it, it generally that that it, that it was intended to have i just don't 
I just don't see like what's what's like the end game. Like what, what like what good is any of this doing? Like okay, the recall happened. Great, you got rid of some of the soups. Now like some of the teachers aren't getting paid. I know that it's not a direct result, but you're right. Now the the administration for the schools they're missing a couple people, or you know I don't know if London Breed is uh um put in temporary replacements but those people don't know what the fuck they're doing because they just got there and so like solving a problem like this boy would have been nice to have the whole school board there (laughs) right absolutely uh and have more voices in the room and you know uh but it's i i don't think it's i mean it's coordinated in as much as as different groups are leveraging each other right uh you've got this broader just on upset base, right. Of, of folks, the anti-vaxxers, the anti-everything folks, the NIMBYs, they're just the anti-government folks are just all, you know, organized around, uh, government sucks and COVID lockdowns are bullshit. Um, you've got parents who are always a very volatile force out there, um, aggravated by the pandemic and then given an opportunity to, uh, you know, to, to, uh, inject their vitriol into the conversation and then you've got the greater like you mentioned the broader education reform movement right um which is very moneyed um you know the the walmarts of the world the netflix the reed hastings of the world are the ones backing these folks up right they fund their own charter schools and they fund movements like you know parents for great schools right (laughs) um organizations with very good sounding and very 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 uh tame sounding names um trying to think theoretically trying to do good by our children um but really are there because uh a few white people think that they know best about how to uh reform and transform education in this country and they have a lot of money and the ability to promote that and propagate that yes across blogs and 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 websites and news outlets um and 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 media hits um to the point that um they've built a huge movement that is now leveraging all those pissed off parents and all those pissed off people who are just recall everyone right so it's this great confluence it's great uh, perfect storm um but i don't know that it's going to be a storm that is abated anytime soon um i don't know if it's going away uh and it might and we'll we'll see We'll see, because once this, once this uh, very vocal and very adamant, very well-funded and well-heeled group you know, comes into power, you have to govern. You have to do something, or you're going to be the next one recalled, right? You have to, you have to change things. You have to make things better, um, or you'll be next on the chopping block. So we'll see. Well, this is just all part of what we've been sort of referring to as the grand unified theory of the gigantic potato, and <laughs> it's like, you yeah. know. It's this isn't all QAnon shit, but that fucking those sort of like ideas, those, you know, oh, the, the, the people who are in charge are the elites and they're, they're out to get you and whatever that permeates all of this. And it's not surprising that in the wake of the, the QAnon phenomena, as it kind of it doesn't fizzle out necessarily, but kind of broadens in its scope. And it's in some ways sort of loses intensity at, on each specific issue. The idea that the battleground is still going to be our children or whatever is not surprising and this is this is unsettling um i'm just i I like was hoping that when gavin newsom was not recalled in dramatic fashion let's say i was hoping it would kind of put the brakes on all of this and kind of kind of well not really put the brakes on all of it but like shift the shift the momentum the other way and it just really didn't do that no um and I, I don't know how I can speak to that other than 
they spent a lot of money pushing back on that um, and, and made damn sure that it didn't, you know, that he stayed in office. Um, but at these, it's, it's also just easier to do at these local levels, right? They, you only need a few thousand signatures to get something like this on the ballot in a local school district, right? To get uh, a recall or anything on the ballot, really. Um, so it's not that hard to, to execute in these smaller ways, right? I don't think you'll see it in major ways, right? You're not going to see senators or governors or, you know, that kind of level or even congressional officers, you know, uh, uh, members of Congress re recalled, but I think, or even state officials, but I think you see a lot more at the school board level and this maybe even the city, small city council level. Um, cause the, the, the broader the base, the, the larger the district is, it just gets harder to garner enough support, but with a small frothy base in a small frothy district, right? Um, you can do you can do things like this, and you're right. It, it comes in the back of our children. It comes in the backs of uh, the future, right? And unfortunately, the people that we elect to govern our schools are generally the least experienced, the most green when it comes to run, you know, uh, governing, um, and uh, they're also the most manipulable and the easiest to recall and to to uh, uh, to uh, uh, influence. So um, it's it can it's again another perfect storm that leads to the the detriment of our children. And apparently, the most fun to scream out at a meeting. Yeah, absolutely. Um, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And they fear it too. They the districts just they do everything they can. School districts do everything they can to avoid confrontation and to avoid the transparency and the accountability because they just don't want to deal with it. Um, and it is kind of a headache, frankly, um, having been on both sides. It can be it can be paralyzing. Um, to getting anything done um, once, you know, parents and, and a huge or a huge contingent of employees and parents or both or the other, you know, or community members, when they ch chomp down on a certain subject, it can be paralyzing responding to it. Um, and then you're left with not many resources to actually do the work of educating our kids. So it's tough, but uh, we, we move on. Hopefully, hopefully one day teachers will be respected like doctors and lawyers and get the same kind of uh, pay and benefits and, and, uh, and revere just not today. So we're going to move Sorry, from, man. we're going to move from the, uh, public schools to another public school, but it's a public university before we get to this. What is CEQA? Oh, good. Thank you. Very good question. CEQA stands for the California environmental quality act. And it is a document that governs, uh, in California when, uh, uh, develop new development happens. Even if you're build, if you happen to be uh, rebuilding your house and you happen to live next to a riparian corridor or a river, right? Um, uh, in normal speak, river. Uh, yeah, you have to go. Your your project has to go through a certain re uh, review uh, in terms of its environmental impacts. Generally speaking, you'll get away if your project is small enough. If it's your house, you'll you have an exemption, so they'll just say there's no need to do the report, right? But the bigger a project gets, it has to complete uh, a, a report has to be completed about the impacts that the project would have on, you know, not just the natural and lived environment, but also historical uh, art potential artifacts or locations or structures that have to be demolished or trees that have to be torn down or, uh, gas emissions, energy emissions, things like things of that nature. So it's an act that covers, governs all of this. Um, and it sounds like a good thing and it is a good thing to have that kind of review on any big project. The problem has been that, um, moneyed interests and lawyered interests have been able to manipulate the development process and stall projects. Um, for example, say a labor union has a beef with a certain contractor or a certain developer, 
and they don't want one of their projects to go forward without a labor agreement with them, they can use or they have used CEQA and threatened to sue on the environmental grounds of a project um, uh, using broad loopholes and broad definitions of what they can sue on in order to extract that out of the developer, right? Um, so uh, this story is an example of how CEQA has been uh, misused in terms of uh, uh, UC Berkeley avoiding you know, building more housing for their students. Um, however, generally speaking, it's it's been abusive. Not just, I don't want to just single out labor unions, uh, corporate interests and other interests uh, do this in realtors, <laughs> pull the same crap with CEQA all the time. It's over, it's manipulated, it's overused. Um, so there, there are reforms underway to, to rein it in a bit. Um, but it's still a very vital piece of the, the development process because you don't want to just let anyone developer do willy nilly build a built huge building in the middle of your town without considering what the impacts are to the population of your town and, and not just the human population as well. So anyway, this so is a story about that. Just to have more of an opportunity to be able to go to college, it really made me happy. There's a big smile on Trinity Lee's face tonight because Governor Gavin Newsom signed into law SB 118. That's legislation that will stop Cal from having to turn away thousands of students from its incoming freshman class. I've just heard about Berkeley ever since I was in middle school. So just for me, just it was just so exciting just to know that I have the option to go there. And now I know I don't have to be counted out anymore. Before today, Lee was in that group of some 5,000 students who could have gotten a rejection letter from Cal when the state Supreme Court ordered the university to reduce its in-person enrollment by 2,600 students. That was a possibility because just recently, the court sided with a neighborhood group that sued the school for violating environmental laws by adding too many students without providing housing. That prompted two lawmakers to draft the bill. It passed very quickly and unanimously in the Assembly and Senate. And it was signed quickly by the governor. You know, I think it's unfortunate that they didn't pay attention to the fact that more than 10% of students at Berkeley are homeless while they're in school here. And they got no legally uh, binding commitment in the legislation for the university to increase housing. Assembly member Phil Ting and state senator Nancy Skinner are the authors of the bill. We need to build more housing. That's why we put $2 billion to support housing at our colleges and universities. The city of Berkeley, the voters passed an initiative back in the 70s that basically prevented multifamily housing from being built. So we have to look also at ourselves and not just campuses for our responsibility for not building enough housing. UC Chancellor Carol Price put out a statement saying that the university is working on fixing its housing crisis. She also says that the school is working on being more transparent. In Berkeley, Cheryl Heard, NBC Bay Area News. Seems like they could have gotten that transparency thing done back in the 60s, but I don't know. Uh, so yeah, this is an example of a community group suing using CEQA and the university basically getting backing down and also a local court saying that they um, they didn't have to, uh, they should, they can't accept more students because it would mean building more housing and they don't want, they just didn't want the additional housing basically they just don't want more people around they don't want their parking spaces taken up they don't want you know taller buildings next door to their houses um it's just another example of uh nimby's trying to block uh development so the state stepped in and 
the state legislature stepped in and created a law that basically is about this one specific thing, <laughs> this one specific incident, but could apply to other other instances. So I I only see this as like a partial victory because if the school is going to admit all those students, but there's nowhere for the fucking students to live, it seems like a problem. It seems like a kicking the can down the road sort of problem. Yeah, the second part part of it is um, mandating that the school, you know, live up to it because they do have an obligation. Actually, it's it's really um, the the school is almost obligated if they if they accept a certain number of students, they have uh, a mandatory obligation for for the housing they need to provide, right? Uh, so it's like a chicken and the egg thing. They don't have to admit those students if they don't want to. I don't know that you, the UC is definitely is the problem here so much as the the NIMBYs and then the UC not wanting to upset the NIMBYs, right, or the the natives. Um, but yeah, they are. There is a mandate for it, and as Assemblymember Ting said, um, there is funding for that housing as well too. So it's not like they can't do it. It's just that the the neighbors don't want it, and the school wasn't willing to you know go to the mattresses to defend their right to do it. They were just willing to step back, step back, and say we're not going to admit as many students. Easy way out, right? Uh, except for the students, <laughs> of course. Right. Um, yeah, it's yeah. The, the guy that said 10% of the students are homeless, it almost felt like that guy was using the, the, the plight of the, the homeless students as a prop in his crusade more than anything else. Right. He's basically, he's basically saying that if you add more students, that'll just be more homeless students, um, was what he was implying. Heavily um, implying. Heavily implying. And that would not be good for him or his, his property values, apparently. Uh, right. Um, and you know, at the beginning you had mentioned like realtors and, and, and unions and stuff. And I was surprised you didn't mention like NIMBY community groups being one of the main types of maybe even like sort of ad hoc organizations that will, uh, use that law to try to, uh, prevent, I don't know, apartments, fucking even a park they don't want somewhere because they think it'll be a bad park or just any kind of anything. Right. Oh yeah, citizens aligned against virtually everything. Cave people, right? Um, yeah, no, absolutely. I, I saved it for that for the story because I knew that was what the specific group was in that story. But absolutely, and don't put it past like the Sierra Club, the Audubon Society. You know, ostensibly good organizations fighting for the environment to be using this um, in a vindictive way too, not just to save the birds. Um, it has, it does happen, um, and for personal reasons. So. Yeah, absolutely. And I think like the environment groups <clears throat> may be the ones that are more likely using the law sort of in within the spirit of the law to be like, hey, you can do your housing development, but don't fuck up this habitat here or whatever, you know? Right, right, right. Um, so uh, stay tuned for, for more in the great sequel battle. And uh, thank you, Producer Dave, for the opportunity to explain a really uh, obtuse and uh, moribund piece of policy to, to everyone. Wait, not moribund. That's not the right word, but obtuse piece of policy to everyone out there. Cool. Well, we're going to move on to our last story in Winners and Losers. We got uh, some schools are going maskless and uh, parents are rejoicing, but apparently the teachers not so pleased with it. Nah. We'll see who wins. The mask has become part of students' everyday routine. So even with San Jose Unified saying masks are optional, most students still masked up today. Across San Jose Unified's 41 schools, school officials and teachers say masks may now be optional, but they're still as common as backpacks. Students are between 85 and 90 percent are wearing masks, and uh, the majority of teachers are also choosing to continue wearing masks. And they don't expect things to change much, at least not too soon. It's not a transition. I think that's going to happen in, um, you know, overnight. I've had a couple elementary schools that have said, you know, there were a couple kids that came without a mask and then they saw 
that most everyone else was wearing one and then they put one on. But just next door, in 19 elementary schools and seven middle schools in Alum Rock School District, masks are still a rule, not an option. They have decided to keep the mask mandate till the end of the school year. Parents and kids we spoke to today don't seem to mind. I feel like it's going to keep us a little bit more safer. I'm actually really glad that the Alum Rock School District is keeping the mask mandate um, for our kids. I think that our my own son is still very nervous about COVID. Alum Rock was particularly hard hit by the pandemic, and many say they'd rather not risk another wave. So I think here we understand the implications, and we just want to make sure that everyone's safe. Alum Rock isn't alone. Franklin McKinley and Oakland Unified have also said they'll wait at least a few more weeks before lifting their mask mandates. In San Jose, Ginger Conejero Saab, NBC Bay Area News. That was interesting. Hmm. Instead of showing the teachers who were upset about masks or whatever they showed, or I'm sorry, teachers, parents who were upset about masks, they showed parents who were fine with it. Oh, yeah, a nice little reversal. So maybe not so much winners and losers after all there. Maybe there are some winners. It's just, um, it's just who they chose to who they chose to show. I think you know. Yeah, editing is an amazing thing, right? Um, and uh, it's all in who you talk to. Um, and a lot of times with local news, it's really whoever the first person they talk to kind of tends to dominate the story. So, um, but yeah, good on certain parents for for being uh, remaining cautious, and good on the kids for being cautious. Props to them. Um, listen to the children. That's what I always say. They will tell you what's best. Um, for themselves and for you, probably, too. Anyway, um, well, uh, moving right along to our favorite seg segment of the show, getting your shit together. Uh, as we've been following, NBC Bay Area is doing a another one of their fantastic investigative reports. Um, uh, this one is on San Francisco, and yeah, apparently it needs saving. Um, so we watched uh, episode one. Or you, I think you might have watched episode one a couple weeks ago. Yep. So uh, this is episode two, and uh, it's a very interesting uh, report so far it's kind of focusing not so much on like the macro but the micro and taking like one person as an example of the the entire system which um i don't know is a little problematic to me but um why don't we go ahead and, and see what this this next episode is about it's it's a little long so we don't have to get too deep into it but maybe it's the intro and then i uh, see where we go from there it'll give me a chance to go grab a caffeinated beverage all right there you go let it roll have you ever been in love Like that really crazy heart pounding kind of love? Well, our bodies produce different types of hormones, essentially chemicals that kind of act like drugs, giving us a massive rush that can make us do some pretty wild stuff. Forgive things we otherwise wouldn't, do things we never thought we would, <laughs> and even put ourselves in danger, all for that special someone. Living in San Francisco today is kind of like being caught in a bizarre love story. There are moments you fall head over heels and don't think it can get any better. And then other times, you're just heartbroken. Your stomach is in knots, you can't think, and all you feel is pain. But you're still in love with the streetcars and sunsets. The ups, the downs, the parks, people, and their pride. There's grit and glam and gluten-free everything. And yeah, no relationship is perfect. This one certainly isn't. But no matter how bleak 
or dirty or expensive or even dangerous it may get, we want to make it right. That's what you do in a relationship. The good ones are worth I'm gonna throw up. And this is a good one. Yeah. It's this beautiful, broken place. Oh, so, this yeah, is getting deep. We're allowed to not like parts of this city. But that doesn't mean we stop loving it. Because I love that sweater. We're committed to San Francisco. In sickness and in health. Um. Um. In oh, this guy again. In his years yeah. in and out of jail and rehab, it's clear the system that's been in place for decades is failing. Driving through parts of San Francisco, drugs, mental illness, and homelessness all collide into one big, overwhelming mess that seems almost impossible to clean up. So what exactly is the solution? How do you get people help, especially those who feel like they don't even need it? Durgan doesn't want help. That's Anne Ray. She filed a restraining order against James Durgan after he allegedly tried breaking into her home. But he's come back repeatedly over the years, even naked. She worries about what he'll do. He has two sides to him. He has this very meek and articulate side of him that's almost submissive. But then there's angry James Durgan, which is actually what the park police call him. And that's when he's really high on meth. And that's when he is very violent. About 75% of those locked up inside San Francisco County Jail suffer from mental illness, substance abuse, or both. And once the city's inmates are released, nearly half get arrested again within three years. James Durgan is the face of those statistics. Countless times he's been offered help. I want help. My neighbors want help. We want to just live a peaceful life. And we don't want to be afraid. But for as many times as Durgan has been arrested in San Francisco, including here in the Presidio, neighbors seem to be pretty split on how they feel about him. There's this woman who didn't want to be identified, who says Durgan tried breaking into her home and then left a message telling her about it. Written in black Sharpie, the word almost on our door and an arrow pointing. Just rehashing a lot of what they did in the first one. I almost got in. Yeah, I, yeah. It makes me sick. It makes me feel sick to my stomach. A few blocks away, we met Garner Swan. I am blessed. Not just like they just ran the same footage in the first one. He says James really? has repeatedly yeah. stolen stuff from his front lawn, packages, his kids' toys, but he doesn't hold it against him. He's not the problem. He is a symptom of it. He says whenever James is around, he enjoys talking with him. He was really fascinated with just knowing who I was. And and especially when I told him I had kids, he wanted to know about my kids. And oh, that's weird. To meet my kids. <laughs> he wasn't looking right. to get information from me so he could come and stalk my family. He was just excited. Someone was he just to wanted to know about, about my kids. Name, Chrissy Kenny has been Aww. nine years. James Durgan, our unhoused neighbor, he's definitely a polarizing figure. Most of the residents who have been here for as long as we have, have all had some kind of an encounter with him. Have you ever been afraid of him? I haven't. Um, in a lot of ways, he has the mind of a child. He's sometimes very lucid and he's sometimes just not all there. It's really tragic. 
Durgan did smash her car window once, but she says he shouldn't be punished any more than he already has. If you just remove these people, that's not a solution. That's a, I don't want to see it, so make the problem go away. We could probably put some tape on it as well. Chrissy Kenny is a lighting designer. Directly above you is really easy for me to change. But like she says in high-priced San Francisco, times were already tough pre-COVID. But layoffs during the pandemic forced a lot of her coworkers to leave town. The number of people moving out of the city has spiked 34%. It's wildly expensive here. Single bedroom units close to $5,000. It's tragic. Chrissy says she sees many of her loved ones, even herself, in James Durgan. He's a representation of um, a lot of people in this city. And it's just hard to see. Jared Rudolph is the attorney defending James Durgan. If you just look at what he's accused of, he's so much more than the accusation. Jared is with the Public Defender's Office, which represents at least 70% of the accused here at San Francisco's Hall of Justice, since they can't afford an attorney of their own. My job is to help people who are in a really, really difficult situation. What's your reaction when you hear people describe Durgan as someone who makes them fear for their lives? I understand why somebody would feel that way. And their fear is valid. Jared has been trying to get James into a live-in drug treatment program, but space is hard to come by, especially during the pandemic. So you think there is a path where Durgan could be a productive member of society? I would hope so, but maybe just a path where he is not bothering anyone, isn't personally suffering, and isn't sleeping on the street, maybe that's all we really need. And a society that permits that and doesn't require somebody to produce is... Oh, comrade public defender. Has you read Manifesto? Led to more charges and jail time. So how did it get to this point? James the accused criminal, James the drug addict, James the homeless man who's had at least 16 restraining orders filed against him. Who was he before all that? There's no one like him. Next time on Saving San Francisco. That was just episode one again. We understand how Durgan got to where he is today. We that was an episode two, you liars. About his past. I so, feel like we're being jerked off here, producer Dave. No. Duxbury, no, we're being, we're being, we were, we were told that that was going to happen, and then it didn't. It's an American dream to grow up here. There he is, James M. Durgan, class of 87. He was the best friend I ever had. Somebody that just had a magnetism about him. We are heading to the house of James Durgan's older brother. I feel like the title of this is entire Durgan here? project is like just inaccurate. Saving San Francisco, like we're, we're t I mean, it's it's an interesting exploration of this one person. It looks like, but maybe a little redundant. But I don't know about. I mean, I don't know how this necessary. I mean, I, they're getting at the city a little bit, like they're getting at it, but it's not the heart of the story. Like, so I don't know. The like they've mentioned a couple of structural problems, like in the first two episodes. But I found that it seems as though the people they're interviewing about this guy are the ones bringing up San Francisco's structural problems, like unprompted almost. 
Yeah, and what are we doing? And what are, are we proposing anything? Or is someone in this show going to propose? I'm guessing that it comes in a later episode proposing what are we going to do about these structural problems? But um, like saving San Francisco implies that someone is actually coming in to save. And I haven't really seen any of that yet. I've just sort of seen that shit's fucked. <laughs> And they need to get their shit together. So when when they finally come with the solutions, we'll take it out and get your shit together and we'll put it into winners and losers or down ballot watch. But I don't think shit's that fucked in San Francisco. No more no more so than any other major city, right? Uh or any other any other city, period. It's just how it is, right? Any modern city, you're gonna have issues like that. And especially during a pandemic and especially during an economic collapse, right? That's just that happens. Um, these things happen. San Jose's gotta get used to it too, right? Um, they're starting to get used to it, but still number one issue is you know housing and it's not because a lot of people you know so many people feel uh, bad about people living unhoused is because there's a lot of people out there who feel bad about people living unhoused and there's a lot of people out there who just don't like looking at the unhoused right um but san jose is gonna have to deal with it too so i yeah i, I agree with you this is just it's the cost of doing business in a city like you gotta deal with it i just feel like if you ask people you ask people who live in other cities in america right like mm. cities maybe where as dense as where we are and more dense, if they could, mm. where, if they could live anywhere in the country, I bet San Francisco is number one. Right there. Top of the pops Bay area for sure. Shit, if they knew about San, San Jose, <laughs> San Francisco specifically, I bet is number one, either that or yeah. like New York city. Right. And right. so, and I think the, the, what this thing is sh shining a light on. Sure. This guy seems like this guy seems like, there's, there's, there's so many problems going on with this guy, right? But let's set this guy aside. The kind of, the kind of gritty part of living in an American city is one of the things that draws people to cities because there's stories in cities. Yep. That, that's why we're able Absolutely. to easily put together a news show that runs was supposed to run an hour always runs a little over an hour about the bay no. area and if we yeah. just did san francisco we could still do just san francisco and the same would be true for chicago new york <clears throat> but then as you get to like the smaller cities you can't do that anymore it's hard to do that and so like you know it's like cliche but like you can walk down any block in any fucking like major city where the population is dense and find stories you wouldn't believe stories worthy of being told like by the news and you're right they're telling the story of this guy but i don't know why they didn't just do a story on this guy because it probably right. would have been a good series right i mean it's got some interesting pieces i just yeah don't care for the journalism and i think they're they're trying they're, they're it's false advertising to me it's like it's like that green day song welcome to paradise he's talking about mm -hmm. berkeley and talks about mm -hmm. how he fucking loves everything about berkeley right right and, you know, I think people that live in big cities, they feel that way. They, you know, the mayor's like, oh, we got to worry about the crime in the tenderloin. But you talk to any random person in San Francisco, they're like, what do you think of the tenderloin? They're like, it's part of San Francisco. <laughs> you know, it's the right. TL. I, I tend to avoid it. But man, there's a good restaurant there that me and my friends like to hang out at. Or, you know, there's something in all these fucking neighborhoods. They're like, oh, every once in a while, if I need a little cocaine, you know, God, I guess you got to go where you got to go. And yeah. It's just this, this series is really dumb. And like this guy won an award for another series. And I'd be, I think it, it's very unlikely this guy's going to get any award for this series based on what I've seen so far. The first episode well, is the same might. as the second episode, but it's so fancy and it's so well edited and shot. I mean, and he's, he's, he looks so good in his sweater. Watch, he won't win an award for this. I'll bet you. 
he it, it's like trying so hard to be vice <laughs> it is it is he's trying to get move up the ladder too vicky win you know went up to to national nbc she's on the today show now she was on the nbc bay area so big guys are just trying to follow her footsteps he'll be on cnn one day anyway uh Moving right along down ballot, we've got a few more stories before we turn it over to local love for the 200 epi. Um, so down ballot watch, we'd like to take, take a look at what's coming to the ballot in the near future. And um, this may not be coming to the ballot, but we'll see. Uh, speaking of people who are upset and want to recall everything um, with gas prices so high, people want to cancel the gas tax. So we'll see if we end up voting on that again. Soaring prices at the pump are already forcing some consumers to scale back their spending elsewhere. On the weekends, I don't go out anymore. So that's been a bummer for my friends and I. At the start of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, some commuters had voiced support for efforts by the U.S. and other countries to sanction Russian businesses and ban oil imports. But with prices continuing to rise almost daily, some now have questions about how long this will last. I don't know what is the reason it's more expensive because we only we need the 1% from uh, Russian and I don't know what is expensive here. With gas prices continuing to skyrocket, California Republican legislators say they'd like to try to do something now to provide some relief for drivers. Gas prices in California are too damn high. Speaking outside a gas station in Sacramento, several Republican lawmakers detailed legislation to try and suspend California's 50 cent per gallon gas tax. But they weren't very clear about whether they want to pause it or eliminate it. We can do this. With the surplus that we have, we can backfill projects in transportation, which is why we have this additional tax for infrastructure. During his state of the state last week, Governor Gavin Newsom said California will have a $75 billion budget surplus, though the state's chief legislative analyst has since said it's more likely about half of that. The governor says he wants to ease the pain of high gas prices by issuing rebate checks directly to California drivers. Meanwhile, economists who study the energy sector say cutting the gas tax may not provide any relief to consumers and could permanently cut infrastructure funding if it's suspended indefinitely. Part of that, that gas tax reduction uh, will be captured by the producers of gasoline. Maybe the gas stations, maybe the refineries. In San Francisco, Sergio Quintana, NBC, Bay Area News. Yep. If they, like, reduce the gas taxes, it's going to, like, maybe they'll split the difference. But I feel like somebody in that fucking, in that broader gasoline food chain is going to scoop up a bunch of that money. Oh, money, yeah. Money always finds a way to some place to go, right? So someone else is going to... Uh going to recoup it and i did love that that image of the five republican lawmakers i'm pretty sure that's the only republican legislators in sacramento <laughs> all, five, <laughs> all five of them um and then that truck coming in behind them like hey honk honk guys get out of the way i need to gas up my truck um but yeah that, that was pretty hilarious um so we'll see how far that gets uh not very far seeing as how you do need i think two-thirds majority in the legislature legislature to pass any sort of tax or tax revision and last thing i checked the democrats have a super majority so if this is a republican thing i don't think it's going anywhere but we'll see i love california sometimes i don't um i, I don't know if like i don't know if the the gas tax is like I don't even know what percentage of it is, but the first, the first person they talked to had a good fucking point. He's like, Hey, we only get 1% of our uh, oil from Russia. So what the fuck's going on here? Right. It's a, a very, very fine point. Very fine point. Um, there's, there were a lot of, there are a lot of things at play here. Um, oh, yeah. Unfortunately, like, I mean, um, I know like, like OPEC raised their prices once the conflict started cause they could, 
uh, gas yeah. producers in the United States started raising their prices once the conflict started because they could. And mm-hmm. um, oh, yeah. people are just people are just skimming money off the top because they can. Well, yeah, we're all, we're all at the beck and call. As long as our society and our culture and our commerce are still built around gas and 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 uh, you know uh, non renewable resources, we're going to have to deal with whoever has their hands on those resources, right? And who who refines them and who sells them. Um, so all the more reason to go green, folks. Get on the fucking train. Um. Well, the All problem right. is like electric cars, like people sure here, we'd get a lot of it from renewables, but a lot of people, if sure. they got like electric cars or whatever, they just get that fucking from oil, coal and natural gas anyway. So natural gas being the cleaner sure. of the three, but it would still come from kind of the same place. Uh, just hop into your Ford F-150 and drive it across town. There's probably cheaper gas over there. <laughs> so we anyway. got a couple, we got a couple campaign commercials. It looks like here. One's David Campos for state assembly. And you called this one hope. Yeah, well, that's what he calls it, actually. Uh, so uh, these are just a couple ads. There's an election or a runoff election coming up April 19th in San Francisco for a state assembly seat that was vacated when uh, David Chu got appointed uh, city attorney. So uh, Matt Haney, who's a supervisor, and David Campos, who's the chair, I think, of the San Francisco Democratic Party, um, and uh, uh, is, is are both running for the seat. David Campos is a former supervisor. Uh, so we're just going to compare a couple ads from each of their campaigns. Um, and this is David Campos. I will fight to represent my constituents. I will well, fight to represent milk, the city and county of San Francisco. I will fight to give those people who had once walked away hope so that those people will walk back in. Thank you very much. There you go. So a classic example of an ad where the candidate themselves doesn't say a damn word, um, but you get the point and you're left feeling with if you like Harvey Milk or if you're down with you know pride and, and everything that Harvey stood for, you're left with this kind of warm feeling right about San Francisco, this warm, fuzzy feeling. That's what they're trying to touch. Um, so maybe if David Campos isn't your cup of tea, he's all about San Francisco and that that what you were talking what, what they're trying to talk about in saving San Francisco, right? That love affair. Um, so that's an example of an ad. Um, more positive ad. Um, Matt Haney, slightly different approach, but he has been getting hit quite a bit by David Campos in ads that aren't as friendly as that. So here's Matt's, uh, one of Matt's response ads. Why is David Campos attacking Matt Haney with ads being called ugly and false? Don't fall for it. Matt is the only assembly candidate with a record of creating, not blocking housing. Matt has a plan to supercharge affordable housing in San Francisco, ending exclusionary zoning, building 100,000 new units, and getting the homeless off the streets into treatment and shelter. On April 19th, vote Matt Haney for assembly. It's a vote for more housing now. Just uh, so I think- just on aesthetics, the second ad was better. Um, yeah. Yeah, it had a nice beat. You could bug out to it. And it also had a nice... Nice negative, even though it was sort of def- it was defending the candidate, but it was a negative hit on the other guy, right, for being negative in the first place, right? Um, and then upbeat, positive, boom, 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 Matt looking good in the community, shaking hands with all the diverse people. Um, I do think they're battling over who has the better hairstyle, but um, well, we'll see how that comes out. I also think that the second ad just had substance it you know, even though it didn't say exactly how he was going to do it, he's like, hey, we got to get like a hundred thousand new like housing units in San Francisco, although he's running for state assembly. And I know that like, there's a lot of crossover there and there's things that the state deals with and things that the city and the County deal with. 
And, um, yeah, I just saw more sort of like, uh, maybe not policy, but like appeals to policy in the second one. Um, I don't know anything about either of these people. I presume they're both Democrats. Um, and I, I would presume that the second person might be more, even though the, the ad went one way, I would presume just based on what I know about San Jose is that the second person might be more in the Licardo camp sort of. And the first person might be more in the labor camp. I, I don't know how the camps um, shake out in San Francisco. Yeah, that's that's, that's a pretty good read, actually. Um, although with the Licardo camp in San Francisco, it tends to be a little more genuinely progressive, I'd say. Maybe not so folksy progressive. Right. Um, uh, but, you know, I think that's a pretty good read, honestly. Uh, they profile that way. Um, and David has labor support, institutional support um neither one of them was able to get the democratic party's endorsement um so they're so well, they're kind of fighting for that and they're really just fighting to try and prove who's more progressive because it's san francisco right? well if if your two runoff candidates are the de- are democrats and the democratic party doesn't like have beef or you know really strong institutional ties with either of them why not stay out of it and just let the people decide Oh, absolutely. But it's, it's politics and it's a, it's, it's about money too. Um, you know, having the endorsement means a lot of money and also money that's not going to the other candidate. Right. Um, so, and the ability to say like, I am the Democrat, I am the one endorsed by the democratic party, right? Like he might be a Democrat, but I'm endorsed by the democratic party. Right. And he's not. So therefore he's not a good Democrat is what you can imply. Right. Um, but it generally speaking, those end up being popularity contests at the local level, the state level, anywhere you're talking about endorsements when talking about people making endorsements of other people, it tends to be a popularity contest and not necessarily about who's the best candidate or the best Democrat or the best, whatever. Um, I've experienced this locally just now with uh, local elections and endorsements that came out from the, the party in those elections. Um, so there well, you have it after, you know, I just think after what we've seen at the national level with the democratic party, putting their thumb on the scale against, we've had different preferred candidates last time in the election, but the thumb got put on the scale against both of them, didn't it? And, Correct. Uh, right. and, uh, so maybe it's, maybe the democratic party in California is a little bit, um, a little bit wise to people not liking that so much. Maybe. Perhaps it, it comes down to local. The good news is it does come down to local delegates, right? The people in that assembly district were the ones that are able to vote on whether or not to endorse. It's not the entire party um, unless it gets unless it comes down to a like a uh, an appeal of some sort. But generally speaking, the locals get to vote on their own local endorsements. There's no, you know, so theoretically, if you can organize well, you know, in that select group, you're going to be OK, whether whatever you're trying to do. Has our has our lovely mayor of San Francisco said anything about either the either any of this? That's a good question. I do not know if she has endorsed in the race yet, um, but we can certainly look that up and get back to you. But we have until April April nineteenth. But ballots are going out now, so have um, fun voting if you're in San Francisco. I don't know. It seems like this might be a case too, where like it maybe they're both just fine. <laughs> you know, they're both gonna maybe oh, they're they, both no, gonna me- vote exactly the same way. Yeah. Yeah. Neither it, it would be an absolute. It would be a, a, not absolute, but a pretty much a wash for for just your average lefty you know uh yimby democrat right you're going to get votes on all the good votes on all the good things um there will be specific issues especially when it comes to labor and how they throw their weight around you know that would that's why i would be a little more wary if a candidate was labor back because that tends to mean that they've got um that they that they uh, owe them something right or there's some sort of uh some sort of relationship happening there behind the scenes that might influence policy um so there's that, but yeah, overall, I don't think there'd be a big difference and they're both supported by labor groups. They're not, they're, no one has like the blanket labor support either. So yeah, 
there'll be each would be a good a good Democrat. So, and it's just a question of who, what the other one's going to do for a job once it's over. And so our story for and another thing is it's the one of the most down ballot stories we're ever going to run, and I'm think I'm just going to run it. Do it. A $4,000 bottle of booze. Ooh. Yes, you're seeing it right there. Yeah. Caught on video, exclusively obtained by NBC Bay Area. Happened at the luxurious Grandview restaurant. See the woman casually walking behind the bar, grabbing, there she is, walking out with a bottle of Louis Thirteenth cognac. She then walks out to the restaurant with a man. <laughs> Investigators say they paid for their dinner for walking out with a bottle. It's very strange. $1,500 reward is now being offered for tips leading to the arrest of that woman right there. Well, live. Well, wait, did they pay cash? That's a good question. That was smooth though. That was real smooth. Just like mine, just like, you know, I know what I'm doing. This is my, this is my, this is like their, it's their restaurant, like they own the place. Just go grab a $4,000 bottle, walk out. And where's the bartender? <sighs> Probably doing something. Seriously, $1,500 reward. Fuck, I hope it's coming out of that guy's paycheck. Or gal's paycheck. No, no, we don't want. We don't, we don't want anybody. We don't. No, we don't want the staff. Being, I know, I know. But still, want. you got to, you got to keep an eye. Got to keep an eye. At least they have the the video record. So yeah, I don't, I don't think they're. I, I doubt those people. If they paid with cash, then they paid with cash. And but I don't know. The video was a little grainy, but I bet they paid with a card. You'd think so, right? And they could track them down. Um, well, we'll see. We'll see what happens. Maybe they drank it already. Yeah. They, oh, it's probably gone already. That's a lot of cognac to pound, though. That's some strong-ass shit. Especially, oh. whatever, $4,000 cognac. I mean, if it's been a couple days and they have a few friends or whatever, right? True, true. Well, anyway, that's another, that's another thing. You want to read this out? Yeah, why not? But uh, I'm really excited for uh, episode 200 of Local Love, so please stay tuned if you're watching uh, on the Twitch and uh, other, other spaces. Please stay in the chat. Enjoy yourselves. Enjoy the 200th episode. Thank you so much for joining us for Down Ballot. Uh, as always, if you do download this, please share it with your friends. Make sure that you're giving us some uh, Patreon bucks or some uh, some subscriptions so we can keep everything going. Producer Dave can keep up with the latest in technology so that this radio show uh, on the internet type thing sounds and looks as fabulous and tits as it possibly can. Um, because as you all know, we're going to do a whole show one day on how great this show sounds. So At some point, we are going to have to do a whole show about how good this show sounds. Exactly. So stay safe. Get vaxxed, wear a mask, pants are optional, and I hope you all have a great night. Here at the local scene is where I plant my feet It's where I smoke my cigarette and I hold my drink I look at all my friends, they're all blazing greens Here at the front of the stage, waiting for MTV Where are those guys who's standing next to me With a pipe in his hand, ready to blaze for me About five minutes later, we're all singing We let get the fuck up on stage and rock the scene Yeah, we do what we want and what we want is to jam, so sit back and enjoy the band. We do what we want. 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 We do
Sit back. 